Guaranteed. Deliberating about this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's not going to figure out watch. Guaranteed. <laughs> hey, Will, what's up? Hey, man, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm with uh, Tony. You're, you're on speakerphone. Oh, hey, Tony. Um, hey, man, either of us told you about this project we're working on? This podcast thing? Uh, no, tell me more. Oh, so Tony and I decided to start a podcast. Oh, wait a minute. Do you have like a minute or two to talk right now? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm in, I'm in the car. We decided to start this podcast um, because we like to listen to ourselves talk. Uh, that's called Topophilia. So it's about places and land and, you know, people who take care of the land and things we do on land. And our first episode yeah. is uh, about wilderness. And we've been calling a bunch of our friends to get them to basically say like three words about like what wilderness means to them, like how they define it. Because we want to make like a montage um, okay. about that. Would you, be, would you be willing to participate with us and, and give us uh, like Yeah, a- sure. Three words about what the wilderness means to me? Yeah, or like how do you define wilderness? What are three words that come to mind for you? Preservation of natural resources and wildlife. Adventure. Peaceful. Unknown. Intact. Heritage. Humility. Lakes. Crisp air. And friends. Vulnerable. Important. And loved. Peaceful. Remote. And arbitrary. Welcome to a brand new podcast called Topophilia. Myself and my co-host Will are super excited to bring you this first episode, which we're calling Wilderness. I hope you'll stick with us and listen. We've got a lot of cool stuff planned. Ah, oh, there's nothing like that sound of a forest in springtime. It's one of those things that we really would love to preserve for the future. And that brings us to the first topic of our podcast, which is wilderness. It's wilderness with a capital W, that United States federal designation on landscapes that prevents basically any kind of permanent human interaction with that landscape. And we want to talk about two particular things in this episode. We want to start with how do boundaries around wilderness areas actually get drawn? Like who puts the lines on the maps and how does that process work? We're going to bring you a couple of stories from a couple of wilderness areas that are near and dear to our hearts to sort of elucidate that a little bit. And then the other thing we wanted to talk about is, you know, wilderness is a very powerful and very strict designation on a landscape, but we were trying to figure out, like, is that very powerful, strict designation the best tool we have to preserve landscapes into the future? Or are there maybe other ways that we can use to allow us to, to like maintain the value of places that we care about? which are maybe a little more likely to sustain themselves into the future. So we're going to bring in a couple of other voices to help answer that question. Talk to folks who think about wilderness every day and and, um, have perspective on this that maybe Will and I don't. For the first segment of the podcast, Will and I have a conversation about his first experience really understanding what it means to be in a wilderness and to have experiences with wilderness. So without any more time, let's just jump right into that. I think where we should start is just talking like, what is wilderness? That's such a big question. What is it though? Like, what is it? In 1964, a bunch of white dudes wrote <laughs> wrote some words down on a piece of paper and then passed mm-hmm. it as law, right? And it Howard Zanizer. Howard Zanizer, one of the architects of the Wilderness Act, and he said that uh, wilderness is a place that's to be untrammeled, right? Untrammeled, untrammeled by man. Untrammeled by man. Yes. That's, so what that's does that mean? Like no roads, right? No permanent structures. No mechanized travel, no, so mechanized no travel. bikes, no cars, mm-hmm. no unis- unicycles, right. horseback, foot, that's it. Right. 
I mean, yeah, that's the definition. That's the legal definition of it. Uh, but I think when we, you now at this point, when I, if I said like, I'm going to the wilderness tomorrow, I would be referring to designated wilderness. Honestly, though, like that's how I think about it. Even though you could argue there's places that I've been that aren't designated as wilderness. Um, like I was thinking the Colorado or the Green River, when I did that, I did that river trip for 12 days. In, in it, Utah. In Utah. And it starts up on somebody's ranch. Mm-hmm. And eventually you end up in Canyonlands. But even when you end up in Canyonlands, I'm pretty sure you're not actually in wilderness. But it sure as hell feels like it. Yeah. So but, and the reason I bring that up is because when if I told you tomorrow, hey, I'm, I'm going on a backpack trip in the wilderness, I would literally be referring to some kind of designated wilderness. That's, okay. that's how I conceive of it now. It wasn't always that way. Well, okay, what changed? Well, what changed was when I moved to Aspen mm-hmm. several years ago. Because before that, I honestly didn't even know that that designation existed. Did you have like a, you had like a philosophical, theoretical concept? I knew what the word, I knew what the word right. meant. It, but like from like a literary perspective, like sure. a wild thing. Sure. You know? A place that, I probably would have come up with a similar definition, which is cool to think about that if before, if you could go back to 2013, before I moved to Colorado, if you asked me what I thought wilderness meant, I would probably come up with a pretty similar definition to what Zanazer wrote in that act in 1964, but which was basically that there's, pretty little uh, evidence of people right that it's just um it's not a place there's a lot of things going on besides just the natural where man does not remain that's also in the act right where man does not remain Mm -hmm. sure but it changed when i moved to aspen in 2014 um i took that job working as a naturalist with the aspen center for environmental studies where you worked afterwards which i don't know how i got that job it's a miracle to me seriously i on the phone, Jim was like, hey, have you ever taken a botany class? I was like, nope. <laughs> he said, how do you feel about learning about 100 native plants? I was like, great. Sounds good. <laughs> totally <laughs> petrified on the phone as I'm saying this. But Okay, so you're in Aspen. So we're in Aspen. And almost immediately in training and throughout the first couple of weeks, he kept using, he kept talking about wilderness. And he would say, capital W, wilderness. And he very quickly explained that he meant designated federal wilderness. And I literally just had no experience with that whatsoever. And when I started looking at maps of the area, you realize that Aspen is surrounded on all three sides by wilderness. You have Hunter Frying Band to the east, and you have the Maroon Bells, like the south, and uh, what's the other one? Collegiate Peaks is mm-hmm. kind of like southeast, a little further away. And then even if you spread out further, there's even more. There's the Collegiate Peaks, mm-hmm. and there's Raggeds, and a bunch of other ones. So you realize you're surrounded on all sides um, when you when you live there. And... Yeah, I mean, the way he talked about it was like this holy kind of grail of, of land preservation. After that conversation, one of the things that Will and I talked about was that these wilderness areas have within their boundaries this really similar characteristic of solitude, of feeling like you're insignificant in this place. So we wanted to find a little bit more information about how those boundaries are drawn, how you put boundaries around a place that has such a characteristic. And Will, when he was there that summer in Aspen, it was actually the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Wilderness Act in 1964. And so we went back and learned a little bit more about his experiences there during that year and how a local wilderness area in Colorado actually got its boundaries drawn. So when you were in Aspen that summer, right, it was the 50th anniversary of the Wilderness Act Yeah, 2014, so right. I'm pretty sure I know how to do math still. So yeah, 50 years. <laughs> so there were like festivities. Yeah, well, ACES, the environmental nonprofit, threw this huge party in August with the U.S. Forest Service and Aspen Wilderness Workshop. And we like branded things with giant irons and there was crosscut saws and there's all this stuff. But 
the really cool and like most interesting thing about it was at the end, um, these two women came out on stage and they sort of waxed really poetic about wilderness and they guest gestured. <laughs> they waxed really poetic about wilderness and they gestured to the mountains that were visible and not visible and they talked about how important it was to protect land. And then they wheeled out this giant cake and someone brought out a, like a sword, like a... I, I don't know. A sword is the best way I can describe it. And they cut this cake with a sword, and everyone was really stoked. And it turned out those two women were um, Connie Harvey and Joy Cotto, which I had learned about earlier that summer as part of my job as a naturalist. And so these two women uh, grew up coming to Aspen and living in Aspen. And, and in the 60s, when the Wilderness Act was first written up, uh, it included the Maroon Bells, which are these super iconic mountains right outside of Aspen, 14ers. And that whole area, it included that, but just like the high peaks, like above uh, 11,000 feet or something. Mm-hmm. And Joy and Connie, who were neighbors at the time, they were not, they were excited about it, but they, they thought that a lot more could be done. They like, lived well, in Aspen. They lived in Aspen, yeah. yeah. They were neighbors, and they were like, there's more that can be done here. We don't just use the high peaks, like we use the surrounding areas, and we, we hike across country, and a lot more of this should be protected wilderness. And so they literally started meeting in Connie's kitchen and drawing maps and looking at maps and doing, you know, ground truthing with a group of people uh, to try to establish uh, an extension of the wilderness area. So they were looking for all those same qualities we talked about being roadless, you you know, trails that move through them that aren't accessible to motorized vehicles, stuff like that. So they went through these places that they thought should be protected. Yeah. And I mean, they, like, characterized them. Yeah, they literally drew lines on maps and walked trails and went off trail looking for anything to disqualify from wilderness. And essentially, they were, no one else, they were like, no one else is going to do this. So or no one else is going to fight for this extension or this, this um, you know, extension of wilderness. So we're going to do it ourselves. And they actually formed uh, Aspen Wilderness Workshop. They formed this nonprofit. And they had a team of people that were joined by... Uh, Dottie Fox, who had some political organizing skills, and the three of them were called the Maroon Bells, you know, B-E-L-L-E-S, kind of this uh, riff like on... Southern Bell. Southern Bell, Got like it. a riff on the Maroon Bells and Mountains. Uh-huh. I know, very clever in the 60s. Very clever. And so they, yeah, they were going out there, hiking around, ground truth in these areas, going to the congressman, going to Washington at least once that I know of, and basically saying, like, we, this land needs to be extended and this wilderness protection needs to be extended. Uh, but it took them a long time. It wasn't until the 80s 1980 or so that a new law was passed that basically doubled the size of the maroon bells wilderness but what's crazy is so they were responsible for that doubling of the maroon bells and they also were pretty much single-handedly responsible for the creation of the hunter frying pan wilderness which is where i did that big through hike uh in a, a, a law just a couple years before that other one and as well as the raggeds and part of the collegiates i think so basically overall it ended up being about 500,000 acres of wilderness in Colorado that they directly advocated for mm. and drew lines on and, you know, drew the boundaries for and kind of presented this as what should be protected for future generations. That's really interesting. So it's like kind of this really grassroots, like people on the ground have this thought that the wilderness area we have is insufficient, needs to be bigger because we perceive that it has the characteristics of wilderness and so it should be protected as such, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there is... I don't think the U.S. Forest Service or, you know, the, the feds were coming out there and being like, oh, yeah, we should we should expand these boundaries. No, it's 100% like a local community effort for sure. And so that, like, that idea that it was sort of down... I mean, they, they founded this nonprofit, right? And then the nonprofit sort of gathered steam and people and brought it to Congress. And then Congress was like, okay, well, yeah, we're going to do it because this is what our constituents 
right. say we're going to do. And they lobbied for it. Yeah. And, right. I mean, it's old school lobbying. I mean, it's, it's interesting that wilderness as a designation has to be passed by Congress, right? right. It seems, in the one way, on the one hand, it, it's good because it really puts it pretty permanently into place. It's pretty hard to, to revoke that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it's like these are representatives from all over the country that probably may not even ever step foot in these areas that are obviously very special and very uh, important to, to local communities and they're the ones fighting for it and they have to sort of convince these outsiders, so to speak, that that this is worth protecting or, or drawing lines around. So it's, it's interesting that it happens that way. Having dug into the story of the maroon bells, we wanted to see how common grassroots movements are in wilderness designation. It turns out that right in our backyard, only an hour outside of Seattle, is the Alpine Lakes wilderness. Its origin story gives more context to the role of community movements in the preservation of wild places. To help tell it, we recruited the help of an expert, and we learned a lot about how the designation process has changed over time. My name is Kevin Marsh. I'm uh, currently a professor of history at Idaho State University, and I focus a lot on uh, environmental history of the American West, uh, particularly around public lands and resources. Our story begins in the 1950s, as America was recovering from World War II. Logging began to increase steadily in the mountains of Washington, drawing opposition from locals who wanted to preserve the land. But when they brought their concerns to the Forest Service, officials claimed enough had been done to protect it. Now, the Forest Service was telling people that um, they said, oh, we've done that already. They had created what they called a limited area. It turns out that in the early days of American wilderness, there was only one path to designation. The Forest Service at the time was the only agency who had the authority to designate wilderness. They created the idea. The only route was was through the Forest Service. Despite the excitement around wilderness after the passing of the Wilderness Act in 1964, the issues around the Alpine Lakes were overshadowed by a local movement to establish the North Cascades National Park. In other words, the Alpine Lakes was the stepchild of the North Cascades. It had sort of been forgotten. As logging continued to threaten the Alpine Lakes, wilderness advocates decided they needed to take action. A group of people formed an organization exclusively focused on the Alpine Lakes, the Alpine Lakes Protection Society, uh, in the late 1960s. Just like Joy and Connie, Washingtonians felt strongly about protecting this place, but there was no clear avenue for preserving the land. The Alpine Lakes was just out there. It was roadless, uh, and it had no particular process to get it into wilderness. So that left it open to organizations like like the Alpine Lakes Protection Society say, hey, we've got an idea. This should be wilderness. But there were other groups who had their own ideas about what the Alpine Lakes wilderness should be. Much of the proposals for wilderness in the Alpine Lakes by the early 1970s came from the timber industry. Wait, what? They organized their own grassroots coalition called the Alpine Lakes Coalition. Uh, And by the early 70s had various Oh, the big timber companies, Weyerhaeuser was very involved. This is crazy. So you had timber companies like Weyerhaeuser advocating for wilderness? Yeah, lots of different groups, including the Skiers Association, the Rock Hounds, even an RV club, all had their own opinions about where the lines should be. So in the end, there were two citizen proposals. Two proposals. Two citizen proposals. In front of Congress. By 1973. And suddenly, the Forest Service is no longer a player. Congress moves forward, and part of the story of wilderness is increasingly is a story of public involvement and political debate, and less a story of administrative decision-making through the Forest Service. This is sort of a big deal. After the Wilderness Act passed local community groups were empowered to protect a special place and the value they saw in it, despite the Forest Service's reluctance. We were inspired by these stories of people working on the ground on behalf of places they love. 
In today's political climate, however, we question the value of attempting new wilderness designations. Is wilderness the best way to preserve places we care about into the future? We spoke with Ben Gruel from the Wilderness Society about the continuing role of wilderness. Thanks again for joining us uh, this morning, Ben. If you wouldn't mind just like introducing yourself, saying a couple words about who you are and uh, maybe how you got into working with wilderness in the first place. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, ben Gruel, I'm the Washington State Regional Director for the Wilderness Society, and I've been with the Wilderness Society for almost four years, but I've been in the Pacific Northwest working on public lands issues, uh, mostly in the state. Originally, I'm from um, from the Midwest and from central Wisconsin, kind of grew up in a rural part of, of central Wisconsin on an old farm, spent a lot of time in my youth exploring the Wisconsin River and um, kind of these backwater sloughs that were near my folks' home. Um, my my dad was really into the American West, and so every summer, my father and my mother and my two siblings we would pile up into my my dad's old beater F two fifty Ford. Um, did, didn't have air conditioning. Roll the windows down and just make a beeline west on I ninety. Um, and the first mountain range you hit, if you don't count the Black Hills, um, is the uh, the Bighorn Mountains uh, in kind of north central Wyoming. It's a high mountain range, and so you can get really get out of the kind of desert heat really quickly, and you know get up into eight, nine, ten thousand feet. And so I spent a lot of time uh, in the Bighorns and in Yellowstone and other parts of Wyoming. I really fell in love with the Bighorn Mountains and uh, the Cloud Peak Wilderness. And, you know, coming from a state like Wisconsin, which is blessed with some national forests, well, the uh, a national forest now, the Schwamig and Nicolay National Forest, and a few small little wilderness areas here and there, you know, the idea of public lands in general and just the freedom um, around that and the fact that as an American, these public lands are essentially, I own them and, um, and able to use them, but also just the idea behind wilderness and just exploring the Cloud Peak um, was just something that was incredibly thrilling from a you know, youngster all the way on up until, you know, when I take my family there. Um, so that's kind of how I really got passionate about public lands and wilderness protection is through some of those early experiences and in, in, uh, in largely in Wyoming and largely in the Bighorn Mountains. When you started going to the you said, what, Cloud Peak Wilderness, did, was there like any particular characteristics or like you identified that as like really being wilderness as opposed to maybe the National Forest in Wisconsin or like, did something set it apart from other public lands you'd been to before? Yeah, I mean, the I mean the Cloud Peak Wilderness has all the classic kind of wilderness characteristics, um, you know, just pristine mountain lakes, um, you know, that had teeming with uh, with native trout, well, some native trout, also some trout that were planted, um, but, you know, high mountain peaks, um, you know, meadows, uh, we used to see a lot of elk up there. And so, yeah, I mean, it was the, the, the Bighorn National Forest is inc- like a lot of national forests is incredibly eroded. And to get into the Cloud Peak and have your predominant form of transportation being your feet and, you know, all the solitude and, and, um, and scenery that comes along with being in a landscape that wasn't, wasn't developed, um, you know, it's, especially when you're growing up, it really stirs the imagination. And it was, you know, um, it's like, you know, it's like being an explorer, being like Lewis and Clark and feeling like you're exploring this place for the first time. Did you know then or do you know now like how that particular wilderness, how it came to be? Like, because that's what we've been looking into a lot is like how particular areas um, have come to be. If it was just like local citizens or more the, the federal government or what level that's happening? Yeah, that's a great, uh, great question. Um, the Cloud Peak Wilderness, I believe, 
was established in Wyoming's 1984 Wilderness Act. And so it was in that kind of round of 84 wilderness bills that happened across the country. There was an interaction between the roadless area inventory that took place in the set late 70s and early 80s um, and the need to establish additional wildernesses and states to essentially release other national forest lands for other uses. And so Wyoming had one of those original 1984 wilderness acts that passed. Um, and uh, and it, so that was, I think that, that was the creation of the Cloud Peak. We're, we're looking at two particular wildernesses. We're looking at the Maroon Valley Snowmass in Colorado, and we're looking at the Alpine Lakes um, here in Washington. Okay. And um, both the Maroon Bell Snowmass and the Alpine Lakes, there is there was a pretty big like grassroots movement behind both of them. They were quite different, but both of them sort of had like citizens on the ground. You know, and in the Maroon Bell Snowmass case, there were literally these women um, who were out there, you know, hiking the trails you know, trying to find reasons why it wouldn't be designated as a wilderness if there were any permanent structures or any roads or things like that. I mean, they were out there not only examining the landscape, but then they were also, uh, you know, lobbied Congress and stuff like that. They had they had this, like, very personal connection to the landscape. How consistent is that process with your experience of wilderness areas? Like, do you think that that's pretty common and that it's often a citizen-driven, at least in some part, a citizen-driven process? Oh, totally. I think with rare exceptions, you know, every once in a while you stumble across a wilderness. There's actually a great example here in Washington State, uh, the Juniper Dunes Wilderness Area, which is the state's only Bureau of Land Management wilderness area that's north of the Tri-Cities. It's got the most northerly population of juniper trees in, in what I believe is North America. That particular wilderness was largely um, driven by the Bureau of Land Management, uh, recognizing that it had a, a incredible values that deserved wilderness protection and the lasting protections and safeguards that wilderness allows. Um, but, you know, I agree with you and that's, you know, I know the Cloud Peak Wilderness, you know, the ranching, uh, not the, the ranching community, but also the outfitting community in Wyoming played a huge role in a lot of the wilderness designations in, in Wyoming. Um, you know, here in Washington State, I think, you know, if you look back at the history of wilderness designation in Washington State, you know, which happened in 1964 with the original act in 1968. Ben goes on for a while naming Washington state wilderness areas and their dates of inception that have all had a pretty big grassroots element in their designation. And rest assured, there are a lot of them, but we'll spare you the details. Um, you know, all of those designations um, had people behind them, local grassroots advocates that were, in some cases, working on protecting those areas for decades. Um, and, you know, it's, it's no exception, you know, with the 2014 expansion of the Alpine Lakes Wilderness Act, where you had grassroots advocates from in North Bend and Issaquah and Sammamish who had been working on the protection of the Pratt River Valley and the Middle Fork for literally since, you know, prior to the 76 creation of the original wilderness. And so I think it's with very rare exception, do you find a wilderness area that doesn't have people who had been advocating on its behalf for you know, like literally, in most cases, decades. Every once in a while, you stumble across a kind of anomaly. Um, but for the most part, you know, there's um, the history of wilderness is the history of people. Kind of building off that going forward, I, I feel like I've seen a lot less um, wilderness designations happening recently. And I found myself wondering when our national monuments are under attack and other public lands are being kind of um, sold off to, to rights and stuff like that, what role you see um, wilderness playing moving forward? Like, is it wise to shoot for that strictest protection possible? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in the context of the attacks that we're seeing on our public lands, you know, Bears Ears National Monument, Grand Staircase, Escalante, in southern Utah, you know, I think one thing that it's, it's proven to me is that, you know, wilderness is lasting and durable, and that the Antiquities Act and, and national monuments were always thought of as being generally, you know, a, a gold standard in regards to safeguarding these areas for all the values that we create for them, recreation, wildlife habitat, scenery, water quality. And if anything, um, the most recent kind of contemporary attacks that we've seen from the Trump administration really validate the role of wilderness as a conservation tool. Um, we're not seeing large-scale attacks on big W wilderness areas um, in Utah or Washington State or even Alaska, for that matter. The wilderness designation in wilderness is, you know, is intended by uh, the creators of the Wilderness Act to be a designation that stood the test of time. And even during an administration where you have a aggressive push to uh, eliminate protections on our public lands, wilderness stands strong. One other side that uh, of that I've heard is you know, because wilderness is so enduring and so, um, you know, so protected that it actually, some, sometimes it can restrict ability for us to adapt to things like climate change? I think, you know, in the context of, of climate, I think wilderness areas are really important for a number of reasons. Um, and I think first is as a control sample, you know, having a control to be able to see the effects of climate change on the ground, I think is incredibly important. You know, it's also incredibly important in the context of, of habitat and migration, um, you know, as part of climate change, uh, critters are going to need to be able to move up and down and over and under. And having wilderness be a core tool in the concept of connectivity, it is a designation that allows for wildlife to move um, relatively unencumbered. Wilderness is not necessarily an impediment to adapting to climate. It's actually part of the solution. We wanted to, to ask you, um, kind of in 2018, looking forward, like what is, you know, y- your area here in the Northwest and General Wilderness Society doing, like what are the big projects you guys are working on or what's really exciting to you all right now um, to protect wilderness or expand it, kind of things that are at the top of the docket? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll be a little bit blunt and honest with you in that a lot of our focus as an organization right now, um, given the, um, the administration, the, the threat that this administration poses to our public lands, um, not just in Washington State, but across the country. A lot of our focus, frankly, is is maintaining what we have, what Americans have worked for for, you know, generations to protect, um, you know, the public lands legacy that we hope to leave for future generations. Um, you know, that is really where the Wilderness Society is an organization right now, where we're putting a lot of time and attention. Um, a lot of what we do is is getting the public engaged. You know, poll after poll shows that Americans care about public lands for values that we are seeking to protect them for and not oil and gas development um, uh, and, and not as, um, you know, not to satisfy this administration's kind of corporate cronies. What we're doing is bringing those voices to bear and, and, and also encouraging those voices to be able to get out there and, and tell their side of the story. Awesome. Cool. Thanks, right, ben. ben. Thanks. Yeah. Well, hey, we really appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate that. You too. Yeah. Talk to you soon. So uh, way back in the beginning of the episode, we wanted to focus in on how the boundaries of wilderness areas got drawn up and if wilderness continues to be a vital preservation tool in the future. Do you think we got, you know, got through all that today? I feel like we did. I learned something. Were you surprised at all by what we learned from these stories uh, at the Maroon Bells and the Alpine Lakes? I feel like I, I feel like I am surprised. Yeah. I guess I didn't really know how much of 
a grassroots effort. It really is to establish a wilderness area and to really like get boots on the ground and find out where are the important places and why are they important and are they suitable for a wilderness? And then not only doing all that work like on the ground, but also advocating for them and like joining people together and getting Congress to pay attention and working with other people and like, you know, the timber industry and other interests like that. And the Alpine Lake story was pretty amazing to me. Um, and even the Maroon Bell story, it's one of the first wilderness areas to ever get designated. And and still those grassroots efforts were like the main reason why it, it became designated the way that it was. So it kind of just amazed me. You know, I guess I always thought that Congress makes these decisions over in Washington without a lot of input. And it turns out that is not the case at all. It's a really a community-driven thing. Yeah, definitely. I think that part is really cool as well. Do you feel like after talking to Ben and Kevin... Um, do you believe that wilderness is the most powerful tool we have for protecting landscapes going forward? I mean, this to me was kind of the big question going in, or at least from my end is why I was interested in this whole episode. I'm not super convinced. You know, Ben gave some pretty good arguments as to wilderness being a great uh, control as climate change happens, and I think that's a really good point. But I also think, and Kevin sort of echoed this too, that there aren't a ton of unprotected swaths of land out there that still kind of need that big protection like most of them have been covered and there are plenty of areas still that are beautiful and exquisite and should be protected but i feel like they're probably still in safe hands they're not being threatened immediately and i think that you know we've we've seen here in the current political climate where our monuments are being rolled back and there's and even ben admits this that they're really not doing a whole lot of proactive stuff on their front and i just think going forward it's going to be hard to rally that same sort of support that we saw in those stories, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And I think we're moving towards a more cooperative uh, kind of agreement or cooperative style of management where you have multiple parties and they all have access to these lands. And there's going to be some balance of economic use as well as recreation. Mm. Maybe we'll do an episode about that one day. (laughs) It took us long (laughs) enough to get through this one. We finally finished it though. Episode zero. Yeah, I mean, I hope uh, everyone out there enjoyed listening, maybe even learned something about the role of wilderness, you know, in uh, American public lands and how they came to be. We, we certainly learned a lot. I think we we're both really excited about how much we learned from this. It's, it's been a pretty great experience. Yeah, and we, I think we should thank people like Kevin and Ben and our friends and our housemates who put up with us doing this for the past several months and being supportive and, you know, listening to drafts and... Uh, our friend Ari, who always answers the phone. Thanks, Ari. Yeah, thanks, Ari. <laughs> yeah, and also a uh, big thanks to our sponsors. We have. We that... don't have any sponsors. No. We don't have sponsors? No, no sponsors. Maybe one day. Are you listening, sponsors? You tell me I bought all the Rainier <laughs> that we've been drinking this entire time. Rainier Brew Company uh, sponsors us. Um, yeah, well, you know, I think one of the things that we can end on here is that, you know, we kind of would like to ask you guys a favor, those of you who are listening out there. Um, if you liked what you heard or you liked some of what you heard or you learned something literally one part literally one part uh, it'd be cool if you would share this episode with your friends maybe on uh, on Facebook or or uh, whatever social media that you prefer Instagram Instagram um, 
If you want to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, that'd be awesome. We're at Topophilia Podcast. Um, and most importantly, if you want to give us your feedback or your thoughts or your ideas about this episode, or if you have ideas about what we could do in the future or people who you want to hear from, you can email us at hey at topophiliapodcast.com. Please give us suggestions. We have no idea what we're going to do. We next. are, yeah, completely lost, uh, but we're, we're excited about, about what the future holds. Um, and for more information and some cool photos and, uh, and contact information for the folks that we spoke with on the podcast and, and a little more detail on some of the stories we told, you can visit our website, which is topophiliapodcast.com, um, and look at the episode notes for today's episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. And a big thank you to the artists who provided us music for the episode today, Lache, Swing, and Broke for Free. You can find links to those artists on our website. And thanks to freemusicarchive.org for providing us with that music for today's episode.